If you're curious about dispensationalism or dispensational hermeneutics, what even that means, we have a great episode planned for you today. I'm here with Mike Vlock, and we're going to be talking about his book, Dispensational Hermeneutics. And we're going to be asking some questions on what the system is and how we can better understand it. Stay tuned. This is the Bible Sojourner, where we discuss issues related to the Bible, theology, and culture. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd's Theological Seminary. Shalom and welcome. Thanks for joining. Well, I'm excited to be with all of you today. I have a special guest, Mike Vlock, with me today. Mike, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. Really glad to be here. Looking forward to our talk and time together. Well, one of the things that I've wanted to do for a really long time is to get Mike on here, and this is a great opportunity to do so because hot off the press is your new book, Dispensational Hermeneutics. And I have just recently finished it this last week, and I thought it was amazing. And so if uh, you're interested in getting a free copy as part of the launch for this book, I'm also going to include instructions in the link underneath the video on how you can sign up and possibly win a free copy as well as information on how to buy it. So make sure to check that out below. And uh, in light of this new book coming out, Mike, I wanted to have you on and talk a little bit about dispensationalism. Okay. And so maybe I know just starting off, though, I think some people might be wondering what in the world is dispensationalism. So maybe could you just kind of define that a little bit for us? Yeah, dispensationalism is, is basically a Christian theological system that tries to understand God's big picture purposes from Genesis 1 through Revelation 22. And so basically it's trying to understand the kingdom of God, uh, man's role in it, uh, the Messiah's role in it, the role of Israel, the role of church. And so dispensationalism has often been linked with, you know, trying to understand God's purposes as they unfold throughout history or throughout various dispensations. And so well, when I when I think of dispensationalism, I largely think of a a kingdom system because hmm. I do I do think kingdom is the theme of scripture, and I think a lot of dispensationalists do. Um, and and so basically, we're trying to understand the role of the kingdom of God, both its material elements and its spiritual elements, the role of Adam, the role of man, uh, the role of Jesus, who's the ultimate man who makes everything happen. So we're trying to understand the kingdom of God, uh, and that even includes its millennial phase and eternal state phase, and how Christ relates to His people today. Uh, dispensationalism also takes into account like the role of Israel, national Israel and God's purposes. Uh, there's a lot going on in the Bible and Israel is one of the major players. So dispensationalism theologically is often really known for trying to understand how Israel past, present and future fits into God's plans. And then with that, a proper understanding of the church. Uh, the church we believe, dispensationalists believe begins in Acts chapter 2. And, uh, you know, we, 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 although there's a close historical connection and blessings and covenants and those sorts of things, dispensationalism is known for seeing some sort of distinction between Israel and the church, that God is fulfilling his purposes with the church of this age, but he's also fulfilling his purposes with Israel. So if you put it all together, we could say, you know, dispensationalism is largely interested in how God's working throughout uh, the eras of history, how that relates to the biblical covenants, the kingdom of God, Jesus's role in all of that and then the roles of Israel and the church and God's purposes. Hmm, that's super helpful. Now, I should have said, too, you kind of sound like you know what you're talking about. And part of that reason <laughs> is is because you've taught for quite a few years now, right? You were teaching at Master's Seminary. 
Now you're at Shepherd's Theological Seminary. How many years have you been teaching? In yeah, the so 17 altogether. Wow. 15 at the Master Seminary now, and second year at Shepherd's. Oh, Theological praise the Lord! Seminary. That's, yeah, that's really neat. That's yeah, been fun. I've been very blessed. Uh, and now I've, uh, I guess some people probably didn't know this on the podcast, but I actually had the blessing and privilege of having you for a couple of classes at Masters. So I that's hope right. you've blotted that for your memory. Don't remember how <laughs> Those terrible are good, good memories. <laughs> good memories. Yeah, well, thank you for saying that. I'll pay you later. But, uh, you know, I, I just really appreciate your contribution. And this this newest book on dispensational hermeneutics, um, kind of, do you want to just tell us how this came about and how does it kind of dis- distinguish itself from some of the other things you've written? Yeah, you know, I've always been interested in, you know, how the Old Testament's, how the Old Testament and the New Testament relate to each other. And I've always been interested in theological systems, you know, dispensationalism, covenant theology, more recently progressive covenantalism, new covenant theology, um, all, all, all those uh, sorts of things. So I've, uh, throughout the, really the last three decades, I, I've done a lot of research. I've been compiling how the different systems understand God's purposes. And of course, one of, the, one of that is just dealing with hermeneutical or Bible interpretation principles. So really, f- for, for quite a few years now, I've just been assembling a lot of quotes from people from different theological camps and how they understand the Bible. And I would say perhaps a couple, two, three years ago, I just had this idea in my mind, you know, it might be good to just compile this, you know, uh, uh, you know, these, these systems we're talking about, they agree on the gospel, you know, covenant theology, dispensationalism, progressive covenantalism, but in a sense they're emphasizing and telling different storylines. And so there's reasons for that, why we can have basically agreement, a lot of things like the Trinity, the person and work of Christ, the gospel, but yet when it comes to like Israel and God's plans, the church and God's plans, the millennium, the day of the Lord, all those kinds of things, there's there's different stories that are being told. So I just thought it would be nice to categorize, hey, you know, these these are uh, Bible interpretation principles that dispensationalists are abiding by that they think are right, mm-hmm. and then contrast with the principles that the other systems use. So really what ends up being with this book is, you know, I, I identified uh, 10 uh, hermeneutical Bible interpretation areas where dispensational say, hey, this is how we think the Bible should be understood. Then I contrast that with the other system. So it was, it, it, it's for the intent of, of clarifying, because hmm. I use a lot of uh, primary sources from both sides. I really try hard to right. represent my side well and also represent the other side well. So it, it's actually more informative than polemical. There's a little bit of polemical because obviously I believe the dispensational sure. view is mm-hmm. right, but it's mostly like, hey, here's the principles we're using Here's some of the hermeneutical principles the other side is using. So you can actually understand, you know, why are, why are there different routes when it comes to understanding Israel and the millennium and the day of the Lord and all those kinds of things. Hmm. That, that makes perfect sense. Now, when you're thinking about laying that out for us then, and I think you do a great job in the book, uh, what, what would you key in on for, I mean, you define dispensationalism prior, but when you're talking about dispensationalism as I, mean, I, I hate to say it, but I think most people online, when they think of dispensationalism, they think of, oh, that it's an escapist philosophy that just believes in pre, uh, like pre-tribulational rapture, and that's all that they go into it, right, right? Right. But you are talking about something that stretches much beyond that. Right. You want to explain yeah, that? Yeah. I mean, the rapture is just actually a pretty small, I shouldn't say small, but it's, a, it's one of many things that God is, is doing or will be doing. And so, so really what we're talking about is storyline. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so in other words, like dispensationalism is trying to understand, obviously God has purposes before creation, but we're trying to understand, you know, the, what is going on from Genesis 1 all the way through uh, Revelation uh, 22. So now the rapture itself ends up being a particular view of, you know, how does the church, uh, God's people at the time of the coming day of the Lord, 
what time is the church raptured? Is it, is it raptured right before it or in the middle of the right. day of the Lord or at the end of it? So again, I'm not downplaying the significance of the rapture, but it's kind of a small sure, piece yeah. of the puzzle. But it has oftentimes been emphasized by dispensationalists. Mm-hmm. So what, we're, what I'm trying to say is uh, the rapture is important. I have specific beliefs on that. But there's a whole storyline of kingdom program throughout history, the biblical covenants, Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, new covenants, how those are playing out, the role of Israel, the role of nations, the role of the church. So really, uh, I guess if if, if uh, people who are watching, dispensationalism is an attempt to try to be holistic with God's purposes, to try mm-hmm. to detect everything that is going on. Oftentimes, theological systems will focus on redemption from sin of the person, which is very, very important and probably the first thing any person should be concerned about. Uh, and that's very, very important. But God's also doing a lot of things he, uh, cosmically with, with creation, with nations, with Israel, with the coming day of the Lord, kingdom phases and all those kinds of things. There's a lot of things going on in the Bible. And dispensationalism is trying to detect and account for all of what God is doing. Yeah, I think one of this is revealing kind of where I come from. And I, I don't think this is unique, but I remember sitting in your class and you talking about how the Davidic covenant, new covenant have this, have this aspect of, of we're glorifying God through actual, the actual kingdom reign of Christ. Mm -hmm. And I just remember, I, I bet you this is so common for people. I think the primary lens through which we view God being glorified is our salvation. Mm-hmm. But what you're saying is that, and salva- you're not minimizing the importance not of salvation. Yeah, it's very important. But there's more to it than that. Right. And if you look at the covenants of the Bible, obviously how a person gets saved is a part of it. But there's things concerning the earth, yeah, <laughs> uh, Israel, nations, um, Jerusalem, land of Israel, other nations, all these sort of, there, there's all these physical material things that are discussed in the covenants along with the spiritual and mm-hmm. what they mean for the individual. So the, I like to refer to the covenants as multidimensional and holistic. Mm-hmm. And so, and that is one thing dispensationalism tries to do is account for all of those elements, the, the personal elements, the individual, the spiritual, but also then again, the national material, physical land, mm-hmm. earth, animal kingdom, all those kinds of things. We're trying to detect it all. Yeah, no, I think that that's super helpful and it hopefully will help people you know, break dispensationalism out of the pigeonhole that mm-hmm. they're often thrown in because this is this is a, a system that is involved in almost every area. Right. And I think that's where your your book is so helpful because really when people are debating these different systems, uh, a lot of times they're talking about the results, but really you need to go down to the core foundational issues. Right. Now, one of the issues that you talk uh, a lot about in your 10 principles is the difference between the church and Israel, and that's obviously a key component now, some something that people often say about dispensationalists is that, oh, you know, you worship Israel or you're too Israel centric or something like that. Do you think that's a fair criticism or how should we be viewing Israel? I don't think it's I don't think it's a fair criticism. Again, it is true that anything that's biblical, it's possible for human beings to emphasize it in a certain way that puts it out of balance with other things. So that's almost true with any doctrine. Sure, yeah. If you only talk about one thing God is doing, you might put it out of balance with others. So now dispensationalism you know, as, as particularly as it, be, it becomes systemized in the 1800s, talks a lot about Israel. Hmm. But that's largely, large part of it is is that Israel largely has had been ignored in church history hmm. <laughs> since around the 300s oh, or yeah. so. And, and so, in other words, you, you, you've you had, I know people fight over the titles, replacement theology, supersessionism, fulfillment hmm. theology, whatever you want to call it. But there had been this idea that the church had basically taken over Israel's role and has become the new Israel. In God's plan. So for a large swath of church history, Israel 
has basically their their significance has been ignored. Hmm. So dispensationalism has talked a lot about Israel. Is it possible to talk too much about it? Like I said, that that's possible. But I, re- I really think that what we need to be doing is emphasizing something in the way that Scripture does. Hmm. And so Israel's not the only thing going on in the Bible. And we can agree that Christ is the most important thing and what his person and his work. But Israel is significant. Hmm. We can't just say, oh, I you know these people talk about Israel too much, or I just want to focus on other things. It is a major player yeah. <laughs> in the Bible. You read the Old Testament, it's, it's, it's a major player. You get to the Gospels, Israel is very significant. You get to Acts 1. What's the last question asked of Jesus before he sends? The apostles say, Lord, is it this time you're restoring the kingdom yeah. to Israel? Yeah. And so all the way, uh, uh, Romans 9 to 11, you're dealing with, hey, Israel's an unbelief. You know, mm. Does that mean God's promises have failed? No, they haven't. And Paul's going to talk about the importance of the remnant and then all Israel being saved. And according to Romans 11, 12, and Israel's fullness comes, things are going to get even better for the world. You find the significance of ethnic Israel in the book of Revelation. And so I guess, I guess the, the, the key thing is give Israel the emphasis Scripture does. We don't want to overstate it or right. understate it. No, that's, that's super helpful. And I'm reminded even of how Ezekiel phrases it, because as a dispensationalist, we would never say, Israel for the sake of Israel. Right. It's Israel for the sake of God's plan and glorifying him. And I think Ezekiel is really clear about that. It's not for your sake, but for my sake that I'm using you. And, yeah, it's very clear in Ezekiel. And I should have added too that Israel is always, is always significance, but it's presented as a means to an end. Hmm. Like in the very important Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, 2 to 3, you know, God tells Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation from you. That is Israel. But the purpose is to bless all the families right. and all the nations of the earth. So we actually believe Israel is a means to an end, but it's but it is always significant uh, in God's purposes. Oh, that's that's really good. No, I I think that that that's super helpful. And when when we're talking about then these foundational issues like Israel and the church and things like that, uh, a lot of it comes down to hermeneutics. Thus, your title, dispensational hermeneutics. Right. Uh, and so you give these ten principles that are super helpful for how a dispensationalist is reading through Scripture, trying to be consistent. Uh, do you want to zero in on maybe two or three? Give us kind of a little taste of you know what what we're talking about. Yeah. So f- so first of all, uh, dispensationalism tries to be consistent with using a literal, or also known as grammatical historical hermeneutic, to all of Scripture, uh, and we believe that if you do that, you will detect what God is, how God is restoring all things through Christ. Mm. So. We believe you take into account the grammar, the historical situation, what we often call call literal, and we, we apply it to all of Scripture, and if done so, the, the storyline will pop up. Now you say, well, you know, aren't other systems literal? And other the other system, theological systems out of dispensationalism outside of it are oftentimes a literal too. Hmm. A lot of the historical accounts and the Gospels and Acts and those sorts of things. But where, where, where there end, ends up oftentimes being an issue is dispensationalism believes Old Testament prophetic sections, mm-hmm. including those about national Israel, need to be understood literally. And there were predictions that Israel would experience curses because of disobedience, and that happened literally. Mm-hmm. And then there's also promises of restoration and, um, and for Israel as a corporate entity. And so dispensationalists believe in the literal fulfillment of Old Testament prophetic sections about Israel that have not uh, been fulfilled yet. So just to kind of wrap up this first point, uh, dispensationalism really affirms that the attempt to be consistently literal with all of Scripture. And of course, we understand there's genre issues. Mm-hmm. We understand there's prophetic symbolism, apocalyptic-like literature. We understand there's legal literature. So sometimes dispensationalism is accused of not understanding the genres of Scripture, but that's, that's actually uh, uh, not the case. We also understand there's figures of speech and mm-hmm. symbols, usually behind figures of speeches and Figures of speech and symbols are, are literal meanings. So first of all, that attempt to be 
consist, consistently literal to grammatical historical hermeneutic. I think on a second area would be where there's a difference is uh, we all agree Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, hmm. but dispensationalists and non-dispensationalists disagree on what that means some of the time. Um, I, I document in my book, I, I uh, oftentimes non-dispensationalists think that Old Testament prophetic passages about Israel and physical things oftentimes are, almost are kind of absorbed or evaporated or even vanished into Jesus. Mm. So I, I quote that in my book. And there's one theologian in particular says, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament in the sense that the, the details of the Old Testament vanish into mm. him. And so uh, we as dispensationalists don't think uh, Jesus is making uh, Old Testament prophetic passages and covenants vanish. Mm. Our view of Jesus as fulfillment is that he's the means for the literal fulfillment. Hmm. He takes it upon himself to make sure everything God's word stated is fulfilled. And I actually think that's the meaning of Matthew 5, 17 to 18, right. where Jesus is saying he came to fulfill the law or the prophets. You put those two together, the whole entire Old Testament. Hmm. He, made, he came to make sure they're fulfilled. And then verse 18 explains what that means when it uses the word that they be accomplished. Hmm. And so, so very important to dispensationalism is the belief that Jesus does fulfill the Old Testament, but it's through, the, he is the means for the literal fulfillment of things. Like he, he's the one uh, that brings the day of the Lord. He is the one that brings the kingdom. And so, so he makes, he makes sure everything happens. Right. So there's a difference between saying Jesus is the means for fulfillment literally, and then saying all oh, these details just kind of evaporate or dissolve or vanish right. or vanish into him. And then I would say the third thing would be uh, the issue of types. Hmm. So oftentimes uh, non-dispensational systems, you know, say, well, most, a lot of what's happening in the old Testament concerning Israel and physical things those are typological or shadows of greater spiritual mm -hmm, realities mm -hmm. in Christ. So oftentimes, uh, you know, Israel, physical blessings, Israel's land, those things are understood typologically. And, and when you're reading the Old Testament, you're supposed to understand that when you get to the New Testament, there's a different kind of spiritual fulfillment. Mm -hmm. And so what dispensationalism is saying, we, we do believe in types. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, there, uh, th there's, a lot of, there's a lot of typological connections going on. You obviously have in Romans 5 connections between Adam and Jesus. And then mo most of the types in the Old Testament um, are things concerning the Mosaic law mm -hmm. and its elements. And we do believe Jesus with the new covenant and his superior sacrifice in those things uh, is greater than those areas. So, so we do understand that types, there are types in the Bible but typology is not the primary way to understand scripture. Sure. Oftentimes with non-dispensational systems, they'll say, hey, we have to hermeneutically understand the scriptures typologically and understand that, you know, don't, don't take Old Testament prophecies literally, understand them typologically. Dispensationalists say, no, we, we take them literally. And they're, they're, but typology and, and, and types are supplementing the literal story, but it's not overriding it. No, that so th sense. those would be three. Yeah, no, that's areas, yeah. super helpful. And uh, so in, in your book, you you basically divide it up by talking about what dispensationalists hold to in their reading of scripture, the literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation being consistent. Uh, but then you also compare and contrast with what you call non-dispensational systems, which the, in, the, mm -hmm. in the book you say, you know, this covers a, a wide variety of different right. uh, adherents to that. And so I'm kind of curious you know, having studied hermeneutics and, and looked through these different systems mm -hmm. of uh, and approaches, where where do you kind of see if if you were trying to explain, you know, where where are the the most hot button issues, the the biggest differences between non dispensational systems and dispensational systems? Obviously, you could hypothetically most of these systems will have minute differences, at least in some mm -hmm. of these areas. 
But where are where are the most significant differences in hermeneutical systems? Probably uh, how the New Testament and the Old Testament relate to each other. Hmm. In other words, obviously, dispensationalism and non-dispensational systems have a high view of the Old Testament and the New Testament. But you do get into this issue of uh, where is the prim- primary meaning of passages found, particularly those of the Old Testament. So this gets into the issue of priority, maybe hmm. even something I should have mentioned in my list before. Uh, but it's very important to understand that with non-dispensational systems, they often hold to, e- either explicitly or in concept, that the, the idea of New Testament priority, hmm. where the New Testament is viewed as the lens for interpreting or even reinterpreting the Old Testament. So, uh, and, and with that being the case, oftentimes with that New Testament priority with the non-dispensational systems, passages about national Israel, the land of Israel, and physical blessings can be reinterpreted or interpreted or transformed into spiritual blessings in Christ or the church and those kinds of things. Whereas with dispensationals, I like to say we believe in passage priority, hmm. which is the meaning of any Bible passage is found in that passage, no matter where it's found. Hmm. God is the author of it all. I like to say God got it right the first time. He doesn't need to transcend or transpose or reinterpret earlier revelation. And so, so we believe that all scripture is inspired. Yes, of course, the New Testament is fuller and it's more complete. And mm-hmm. oftentimes it's going to offer commentary, but we don't believe that the New Testament changes the meaning of the Old Testament. So dispensationalism is a little bit different on that particular issue. And, and that we believe that if you use historical, grammatical, literal hermeneutics consistently, including Old Testament passages, you'll see all of the scripture harmonizes. Hmm. All of it, all of it comes together including Old Testament prophetic passages. But to get back to your question, it's really the relationship of the Testaments Mm. to each other. With non-dispensational systems, it's a New Testament priority where you need the new to tell you what the meaning of the old was. The dispensational view is passage priority, where there is that the primary meaning of Old Testament passages are in those passages, and the New Testament is consistent. Oftentimes it will give new information, will sometimes comment on, um, but but it never reinterprets the old. Mm. No, that's that's super helpful. And you actually have, uh, since we're talking about your books here, you actually have another book that you wrote on that subject. And what was the name of it? Uh, how the old and the new, or, or is that what it's called? Yeah, the old, the old and the new, dealing yeah. with the uh, most of the the cases where the New Testament uh, quotes the Old Testament. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. I I've read through most of that book, haven't got all the way through, but uh, I just really appreciate the way you go through and say, hey, this is what it meant in the Old Testament context, and. This is how it fits with the New Testament. And I appreciate one thing that I don't know if it was in class or if it was in one of the books that you said, but but I, I appreciate how you said, um, let's let's take take all these examples on a case by case basis. And there are admittedly debated issues. Yes, right? cases. Of course. Right. Uh, and right. no, we would be unfair to say that there aren't. But the reality is that most of them are very clear. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so I end up arguing, you know, you get different people come up with different numbers, but roughly 360 quotations of the Old Testament and the New, and that's not counting allusions. Hmm. And so um, what ends up being the case of the, of the 360 or so quotations of the Old Testament in the New, there ends up being about a dozen hmm. cases where a reasonable person might think that, that the New Testament is quoting it non-literally or, or, or in, a, in a way that's different than the meaning of the Old Testament. Hmm. But what I end up arguing of those dozen or so cases, there's really only about six. There's a pretty easy explanation for about half of those that they're they're probably quoted contextually or literally. Mm-hmm. And so really it comes down to a handful and in, uh, that that may not uh, be understood literally, but in, in my book, I argue, I don't even I don't think there's one clear case where the New Testament is quoting the Old Testament non-literally and changing mm-hmm. the meaning. 
And even if there were, let's say there were one, two, or three, four, or four cases, those would be pretty rare examples. So in other words, you got 360 quotations of, of the old and the new, and there ends up being two or three where they we would admit they were non-contextual, which I'm not doing. I'm not saying that. Mm. Those would be the rare exception to the rule and not the rule. Hmm. No, that's super helpful. To me, that's, that's one of the greatest uh, appeals of dispensationalism is if I'm communicating with somebody, I'm going to communicate in a normal, understandable manner. I'm going to, uh, it's, I, I like, I don't think you use this term, but I, I don't think you're against this term. The idea of authorial intent. Oh, like yes. what, yeah. What you, what the author means oh, is what it's going to, yeah, what it's going to mean. I do use that language. Yeah. And in your book, I remember, I remember seeing that quite a bit, but it's one of these things that uh, I, I think that makes perfect sense with how we live life and experience life. And so I think to me, that's one of the greatest appeals of the dispensational system is trying to appeal to that system and framework. Mm -hmm. But yet dispensationalism is viewed negatively by mm -hmm. many people. Sure. Um, so I guess my, my question on that is, is why, why does dis, non-dispensational hermeneutics, why are some of these differences, New Testament priority, some of the over typology, things like that, why does that seem to thrive? Yeah, it's hard to know for sure. I mean, dispensationalism really had a good 19th century and 20th century, particularly in the United States, where it was uh, very well received, very well accepted. Uh, most of the uh, teachers on uh, TV, Bible teachers on TV and radio were dispensational. So that had a very strong 20th century. It does seem that as we got towards uh, the, the change of the millennium near 2000, uh, the success of the Left Behind series um, that, you know, where, where you had kind of a, a kind of a, a fictional account of what the rapture might look like was taken by a lot of people to be sensationalized. Mm -hmm. And I, I do think around that time, I'm, I'm not getting into personal thoughts on left behind series. I actually think a lot of the criticism are probably overstating things, but there was a negative reaction mm -hmm. to, to that. And I, I, I do think in general that, you know, around, you know, roughly in the nineties moving on. There was a lot, you know, there's a lot of uh, interest in, in reform theology, you know, and a, and a lot of good things going on with that. But with that also came interest in, in covenant theology and some theologies that usually were viewed as being opposed to dispensationalism in some key areas. And so who knows whether uh, it's a pendulum swing or, or, or a pattern that's kind of uh, frozen the way it's going to be or whatever that there's, I'd say in the last, uh, you know, 25 years or so, there's been a, a large reaction against dispensationalism. And again, maybe part of it's to the Left Behind series. Maybe sometimes people have gotten tired of people talking about the rapture a lot or talking about Israel. They want to focus more on the doctrine of salvation and Christ's role in salvation. And so but there's no doubt we're, we're living in an era where it's not very cool uh, to be a, a dispensationalist. <laughs> so it's uh, I mean, I think we need to be honest about that. Um, but again, as I, I, I've studied the issues, I, I don't necessarily think dispensationalists have always done the best job of explaining what we believe. Sometimes we may focus on certain things and not talk about others as well. But I, I, I do think it has the ingredients to best represent the Christian worldview. Oh, no, that's super helpful. Yeah, I think I think what you said seems to be completely on point. Each time I hear a critique of dispensationalism, it doesn't end up being anyone who's read your books or anything like that. Yeah. It's it's usually, hey, I, I it's usually emotional. Yeah, I read, you know, the left <laughs> right. behind or anything like that. So I think yeah. that those are those are kind of dangerous critiques when yeah. you when you're arguing with the the yeah not the best representation. And I would even add that too is one you know who's been you know teaching in an academic academic institutions on this. I I'm not saying it never happens, but rarely do I find I come across somebody uh, either in person or just like on social media or whatever who's 
like rejecting dispensationalism for what it really is. Hmm. It's usually a caricature or some kind of emotional reason or, you know, maybe their pastor wasn't doing a good job in teaching the whole counsel of God. But rarely do I ever hear a criticism say, wow, that person really understands the issue. Like right. they know they know what this is hermeneutically and theologically, and they just really have a well thought out different view. Hmm. So I'm not saying uh, people on this side never have a well thought out other view. I'm just saying most of the criticisms, I, I just, I just, that's not really what the yeah. issues are. No, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So I guess kind of on that, on that note, so you talked a little bit about the left behind being maybe a, a catalyst, yeah, kind of a maybe catalyst there's, there's, or a, something you could point to historically where there's a transition. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything, is there anything else like, because I'm even thinking about some of my friends who, who aren't uh, of the dispensational uh, categorization, but yeah. they seem to view you know, and and I'm a part of Facebook groups that uh, you know kind of snuck into some of the all mill or post mill groups sure. and just like to spy on them. So, um, but it's it's really kind of interesting how how negatively. In fact, I remember uh, reading uh, a well known post mill on social media basically said where dispensationalism thrives, the church uh, basically suffers or goes into degradation. And so it seems like there's it's not. It seems like there's there's an abundance of negativity toward dispensationalism. Mm-hmm. Is is there anything in the system itself that that people don't like? You mean that pe- the people are not yeah yeah that are critiquing yeah. it or or viewing it negatively? I guess. Yeah, I mean sometimes it's viewed as being escapist and not okay, caring sure. about the culture. I don't even think that's been historically true. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes the rapture. I mean, some I've, I've heard someone claim dispensationalism is is like Gnostic. Hmm. When it's actually the least Gnostic of all the theological systems because it believes in an earthly kingdom and physical blessings and in the future with Israel and all, all those sorts of things. So, yeah, I, I would say because of the rapture where, I mean, the biblical view of the rapture is there's going to be a coming day of the Lord. Hmm. And we believe it's a seven-year period consistent with Daniel's 70th week. And that Revelation 3.10 and Revelation 1.10 promise, it's a promise from God that the church will be kept out of that time period, out of that hour of testing that's about to happen to all the earth. So in a sense, what we would believe is the right view of the rapture is that the church is evacuated before this very unique time called the day of the Lord is poured out on the earth for its judgment phase of about seven years. But we believe when that's over, the church returns with Christ to literally reign on the earth. Hmm. I mean, literally over the social, political, culture dimensions. Yeah. That's not Gnostic. That's not, that's not escapist right. sort of thing. We just rightly believe that in order for this world to be transformed, Jesus has to be on the earth. I call that mm. boots on the ground, yeah, sort of thing. And so dispensationalism is not escapist; it's it's not gnostic. Um, I actually are uh, in a book I'm writing right now. I actually argued that it's it's the it's the most new creation model, which emphasizes. I know we haven't mentioned that term yet, but where it emphasizes the importance of the physical realm and cultures, uh, society, politics, and those sorts of areas. It takes those things seriously. Now, because we do live in a fallen world before the return of Christ. The structures of this world are deeply evil. Hmm. And so it's going to take Christ returning in order for that to be fully restored. Um, but dispensationalists oftentimes have affected the culture positively. And, you know, sometimes they think they get too involved in politics. I mean, dispensationalists were very involved <laughs> with uh, Ronald Reagan's presidency, oh, yeah. which was often viewed as a, as, as a very strong reaction on the conservative side. So oftentimes think the, uh, uh, the, the categorization that dispensationalism just leads to a, a head in the sand, don't care about anything, isn't just uh, real. It's not real for me. Yeah, I'm 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 active socially, politically, culturally. You enjoy politics a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I enjoy it a lot. So I, as a dispensationalist, I'm very much involved with culture, politics, and society. Probably yeah. too much 
for some people. So it doesn't have to lead that way. It's more of it's more of a char- uh, of a mischaracterization than a reality. Well, and I would add to that. Historically, you're absolutely right. I, I wrote a blog post a couple, maybe like half a year ago now, where I I went through a lot of the people who were involved in politics, like you like you said, with Reagan's administration and even others. Yeah. And they were dispensational, but they were they were in some cases serving in the House or you know in the Senate or there's even you know advisors. So right. that's just you know not not provable, but even, even the case, you know, the way I like to, the way I like to describe it, you can tell me if I'm off base here, but just because there are some people who I would say shame the name of Christ who are dispensational doesn't mean that they are that way because of dispensationalism. Right. I would or say represent all exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, I, I think because dispensationalism was so large as, as a movement, it just makes sense that you're going to have a lot more uh, tears among the wheat, if that makes sense. Right, yeah. So yeah, and you're always going to have people who act in a way that's not consistent with the system and right. those kinds of things. Yeah. yeah. No, that's super helpful. Now you brought up one point. I de- I definitely wanted to get your opinion on. Uh, you mentioned the idea of dispensationalism not being Gnostic, and then you uh, mentioned this idea of new creation model. Yeah. And so this is this is uh, and and I have to ask you about this just because mm-hmm. uh, this to me, if I could narrow down like maybe like the top three things that that I learned from your theology class when I was in seminary. This was one thing that just blew my mind about, I mean, I I literally came into seminary thinking that heaven was this kind of mystical, spiritual player harp on the cloud kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And just boom, mind was blown. And I I just loved it. So, so maybe can you just flesh that out a little bit? Like um, when you're talking about this idea, this, this Gnostic uh, categorization um, new creation model versus spiritual vision. Like mm-hmm. what, wh- why are you using that language? What are those categories and why are you even, you know, using that language? Yeah. So without necessarily understanding the titles, Christians have often operated as far as when it comes to God's purposes and eternity purposes off of two models. Hmm. One is spiritual vision model, which is very spiritual. Basically with the spiritual vision model, the spiritual only is viewed as good. The physical things are viewed negatively and therefore, uh, the, the, supposedly the goal is to escape earth and go live in heaven forever and really in another dimension. Hmm. And so it's re- basically an escape from earth, escape from society, politics, culture, all those sorts of things. And so God's purposes are viewed as very spiritual. And then eternity is viewed as very spiritual. And so I, I'll document this in my upcoming book, but a lot of Christians and Christian leaders uh, in history have basically viewed like the... Uh, Jesus's kingdom and the eternal state is very spiritual and basically escape from planet earth or it's only dealing with spiritual things. Mm. So the new creation model is understanding that God's purposes include the spiritual and the material physical. Uh, in Genesis one thirty one, God looked at his creation and said, Hey, all of it's very good. Mm. And that includes uh, the, the beautiful, everything involved with the days of creation and the, and, and man with his physical body and all those sorts of things. And so the new creation model is trying to detect, just like with dispensationalism, basically, all the things God is doing. And then where the new creation model makes a significant contribution is understanding is that Jesus' coming millennial kingdom and eternal state are physical and tangible. That involves transformation of planet or transformation of culture, society, the political realm, all those areas. And that when we read about new earth, you know, new heavens, but new earth, like in Isaiah 65 and 66 and Revelation 21. Uh, and and Second Peter three that we are our, our final destiny is on a tangible new earth where we're worshiping God we're in His presence but we also know each other and enjoy mm. fellowship with each other and we're also involved uh, doing activity the the last 
statement of the eternal state in Revelation 22, 5 is they're going to reign forever. And that's on the new earth. And that involves the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21 talks about the nations and their kings will bring their glory, which is culture, into the city. So the new creation model comes along and says, hey, let's not over-spiritualize God's purposes mm. or eternity and understand that you know we're, we're, we, uh, we, are he- we are headed for a tangible environment. We're going to be in God's presence, but God gives good gifts and we're supposed to enjoy those. And that includes the, the earth and all it has. Mm. No, that's super helpful. And I, I really like using those categories because it also helps us think through things in a different way. A lot of times, even with the names, all-millennial, post-millennial, pre-millennial, we're, we're often centering our thinking on the millennial reign of Christ as, as a timing issue, but it's actually much deeper foundationally as to what do we believe about creation and God's right. overall purpose. Yes. And that's that Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 worldview. Yeah, I, right. I think that's so helpful. And, I, and that makes perfect sense with what you described about dispensationalism being a holistic system and not overemphasizing on soteriology or anything. And right. like, like I said, right. we believe in God's good grace and right. exactly. saving man. All those great truths. Yeah. Right. And, and that's, that's a part of a much bigger plan though. And I think that that's super helpful. Yeah. Um, when you, so when you're using these systems, um, I, I don't know if you've done much, much reading or study on, on this issue, but, but one of the things that I, I often wonder, is, and I don't know if you have any thoughts on this is, is how is it that the church almost unanimously for so long really bought into the spiritual vision model. Mm -hmm. Like what, I mean, how did we get there? What, what happened? And I would say on a tail end of it, it seems to me, at least you can correct me if I'm wrong. It seems to me like with almost the post mill resurgence, there seems to be a greater emphasis on the, the physicality, the goodness of that in today's church. But I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? On how the spiritual vision model developed? Yeah. So I, I obviously believe the Bible, including the church of, the New Testament era was new creation model. Hmm. Again, it understands that in the present there there is a heaven. If you die, your soul would go to be there. We believe in a, a heaven intermediate state, but the uh, but but the destiny is 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 the new earth, and I think has ramifications for the millennium and and the eternal state. So I think what ends up you, you can roughly say I think the church for the first two hundred years, including the first century, was new creation model. Hmm. Doesn't mean there's not any spiritual vision model ideas, but when you do get to, when you do get to origin. Uh, and then eventually you get into the, into the uh, you know, with his allegor- allegorical hermeneutic and spiritual vision model oftentimes go together because mm. you have the spiritualizing of physical, tangible things. Mm. So the rise of allegorical interpretation, the church coincided with spiritual vision model thinking. <clears throat> when you get to uh, uh, basically into the 300s with Constantine's empire and that sort of thing, there started to be less interest in premillennialism, which is very new creation model because it understands there's going to be an earthly kingdom. But I think the big turn takes place with Augustine, hmm. particularly when you get to the end of the 300s and the early 400s. Uh, he fathered the view that Jesus's millennial kingdom is a, is a, is largely a spiritual kingdom in this age. Hmm. And so, when, when you go into the uh, Roman Catholic dominated Middle Ages, uh, Jesus's kingdom becomes purely a spiritual kingdom. Hmm. I do think Thomas Aquinas, with his idea of the Empyrean heaven being the ultimate, was kind of almost like the ultimate expression of the spiritual vision model. Like Aquinas actually believed that there would be the heaven, the, he, the the current universe would exist, but nobody would live in it. There'd be really no more plant life or animal life or even human life in the universe. It would almost kind of be like frozen, laminated uh, in light, hmm. if that makes any sense. <laughs> and then all of the believers live in an Empyrean light heaven apart from the universe. So that's largely where you get that idea of uh Heaven, I tell the story in my book. I remember when I asked my mom when I was young, I said, you know, what's heaven going to be like? I grew up Catholic and we were very influenced by Thomas Aquinas theology. 
And so that that I, I remember her saying, you know, is we're 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 gonna we're we're gonna live, we're not gonna live on the earth or anything like that, but we're gonna be up in heaven staring into God's light and mm. and just enjoying that forever. Now, obviously, God is light, and being in God's presence is a great thing. But that does kind of present that idea that there, there's nothing good about the earth or God's creation, mm. and that we have to be static and there's no time. And all heaven is is you're not even blinking an, an eye or anything. You're just kind of staring, very passive, mm. into the light. And so that became, uh, you know, uh, Dante with you know, uh, Paradiso and uh, some of Dante's writing really made that popular at that particular time. And I think there's been remnants of that ever since. Mm. Uh, I do think when the Reformation took place, it was in addition to the great soteriological truths, it was also a hermeneutical Reformation. Hmm. That doesn't mean everybody shed the Catholic spiritual vision model ideas, but you did. Uh, I think I think the Puritans were moved to a more new creation model. Hmm. Even though I have my theological differences with postmillennialism, they do believe Jesus' kingdom transforms everything. Hmm. Now, I disagree with them on when that occurs. Sure. I think they're wrong for thinking that's going to occur before Jesus comes again. Hmm. I think you have to have Jesus boots on the ground <laughs> in order yeah. for the world to be transformed in every area. So I, what I would largely say is I, I think roughly like from the late 300s up until the time of the Reformation, you had a very strong spiritual vision model. Jesus' Jesus's millennium is spiritual. The eternal state is spiritual. But, the, but that started to get loosened once the Reformation took place. I think the Puritans took some good steps in that. And then I think dispensationalism in the 1800s was like, hey— you know, if we're going to be literal, Israel's part of this too. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we're not just going to be literal with physical promises, but nations matter, Israel matters. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think dispensationalism has, uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot of areas where I think it makes contributions, but just understanding, yeah, Israel, nations, those are significant in God's plans. Hmm. Oh, that's super helpful. So you mentioned you're working on this new book. I know you've already poured a lot of time into it. Any, uh, any idea on when you hope to have it out? Yeah, so this new creation model book. Yeah, so it probably will be called the new creation model. Still working on the exact title on the cover. I'm kind of in the final stages of editing. I, I'm hoping, you know, it's funny. Whenever you throw out a date, it's usually oh, like yeah. five months oh, after yeah. that. But I've been telling people for a year it was going to be done, but I just keep working on it. And so um, I'm actually done with the writing. I'm actually, as of right now, working on making sure all the footnotes are consistent and okay. done accurately. Let's say this summer. Okay, We're That's shooting fair. for this summer. Fair. And then if I'm off, maybe it'll be in the fall. But I'm really going to shoot to have it done this summer. Oh, great. Well, looking forward to reading that as I enjoy reading all of your stuff. Well, uh, as I mentioned at the very beginning, uh, the book Dispensational Hermeneutics, you can pick that up at Amazon. uh, And uh, also don't forget to enter into the drawing for the free giveaways. I'm giving away two of them. So uh, I'll link to the to the post below and you can fill out the information if you'd like to be entered for a drawing and uh, possibly be a good winner. Mike, it's always uh, great uh, talking with you. I get the privilege of talking to you more often than everyone else. So uh, thanks so much for joining us. Just really appreciate it. Peter, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, Let's do it again sometime. All right, sounds good. 